Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly restaurant related podcast. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. We're doing something a little bit different this week. I have a brand new co-host, Stephanie Gary from KPRC's Houston Life. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And hello, hello. I'm here with some of my favorite people. <laughs> I'm so excited. Yes. So we have both a guest and a second co-host this week. Never done this before, but we've also never had a guest and interview subject come back for a second interview. But Morgan Weber, Agricole Hospitality, uh, maybe... Maybe the busiest man in Houston restaurants right now. Mm-hmm. Breaking all the rules. We're breaking all the rules. So it's good to be here. So we're going to start by breaking the rules with <laughs> a little it. a little peach brandy from hey Indianola Distilling Company. This is uh, Cheers. Morgan's latest project that we'll be talking about Cheers, later. Guys. Cheers. Cheers. Prost. All of the above. Mm. That doesn't suck. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> so we'll let's, put that uh, on the bottle. <laughs> you should. Um, let's dive into the news of the week. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is my list of 39 upcoming bars and restaurants that are going to open roughly between now and we're going to call it mid-February, kind of taking a longer-term view. Some of the restaurants we thought were opening in the fall have been pushed back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Morgan, which brings me to you, what is the status? You, you guys are opening uh, a bar, a pizza shop, and a restaurant in the East Village development in East Downtown. How's that going? Kind of where are we with that? Yeah, I think I think anybody that was in permitting or under construction before Harvey hit is it, there's a little bit of a question mark as to how timelines are going to go from here on out. Um, I think there are the last I heard there were 150,000 building permits for housing and renovations sitting at the city of Houston right now. And the city, you know, the planning department at the city of Houston has never been super... Um, no, not a paragon of efficiency. Yeah, yeah. Um, not a lot of sense of urgency either. And now uh, the, the big question remains as to whether or not the city planners and the inspectors are going to be uh, expediting this process and not getting bogged down into the excruciating minutiae um, like they have in the past. You know, after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans... The city responded very well by getting uh, businesses back open, getting construction projects underway, and really encouraging business to get back to normal. So hopefully the city of Houston is going to do that. We're still in the middle of permitting. Uh, we, we have been in permitting since June. Um, I thought I saw some signs of life. I, I happened to drive past the location recently. I thought I saw some signs of activity. Oh, there, there are signs of activity. We had uh, about 500 square feet of our ceiling collapsed during the storm. Oh, boy. So... Yeah, that so happened. So there's a little repair before little repair. the opening. Um, but even. that was, you know, it's that's the best time for that to happen was during the storm. Yes, and before you are open for business. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Stephanie, Morgan, I, sorry, I was just going to say he's a bit of an overachiever. I don't really have anything to say because uh, I'm boring in comparison. I get bored real easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Stephanie, I know you looked over the list. What were what were one or two of the. Uh, of the upcoming concepts that you are particularly excited about. Okay, so first of all, that list was pretty impressive overall. So 39, I looked at it and I was like, wow, there's there's a lot going on in Houston. Well, I, I saw that the Houston Press did 20 and I... You gotta, that's you gotta one-up them. That's what we do here, right? We gotta yeah. one-up them. Um, you know, your, 
your ones that we'll get to in a little bit were all very, very appealing. You're the master of this. But the ones that caught my eye, really, um, I'm going to go with Goodnight Charlie's, first of all, because I'm a big David Keck fan. Um, he is just kind of one of those guys I want to hang out with all the time, just like the two He's of you. He's one of the most likable human beings in town. He really is. And, you know, Morgan, you're an overachiever, but this guy, seriously, I mean, his background is... He's a chameleon, yeah, really. Yeah. Opera he, singer, master sommelier. Uh-huh. Just all around It's like awesome anything guy. he puts his mind to, he's going to be the best at it. Exactly. Yeah. So you go from wine to beer in a shot, all right? And Morgan, you need to get this... Um, what, what was this again? The apricot peach. The peach. peach brandy. The peach brandy that we just took a shot of. You need to get that in there. Absolutely. At his honky tonk. Because I'm about to go two-step, eat some tacos, and drink beer, and take a shot with David Keck. Yep. Okay? So that one I'm, I'm really, really excited about, obviously. Um, the other one... Now, I don't know if I'm going to... I'm, I'm going to probably try and put a spin to this. Is it culture? Or just yes. culture. I, well, that's a good. That is a <laughs> okay. that is a good question for Marcus Davis. But uh, I've been reading it as culture. Okay, so so in my head it's culture and uh, culture. So that one too, I think, coming from the Breakfast Club, which is a Houston all time favorite and one of my all time favorites, I think he'll do great things. Um, also, with that being down on Avenue to Houston, that's a place I I spend a lot of time. At and you know hopping over there and having a restaurant there that will likely have a huge line again and a big following. Um, that's pretty exciting to me. Right, Marcus Davis of the uh, of the Breakfast Club. His restaurant devoted to the African diaspora. So you'll mm-hmm. have some Caribbean elements. You'll have some Southern elements. It's it's an interesting concept. It's you know Avenida obviously has changed a lot just in the last year with a whole bunch of new restaurants and and you know. Very few of them are are sort of like locally grounded. So mm-hmm. that, that this is uh, independently owned, uh, an entrepreneur who's been very successful. I'm I'm real curious to see what he does with like a, a stepped up, maybe a little more refined concept. Absolutely. Yeah, when, when did the Breakfast Club open? Oh God! Been, I mean, it's got to be close. It's to been a years. minute. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be cool to see what he does with twenty years of thinking about it. You know, before he opens a new place, it's right. going to be cool. Yeah. yeah. So both of those to me are. Very, very exciting. But the list itself was pretty exciting. Um, more so, though, I'm excited to hear about what you're excited about because that you're the master. <laughs> well, thank you. That's very kind of you. I, I am super excited to try Theodore Rex. I have Justin Yu's replacement for Oxheart. I, I, haven't, I haven't had a chance yet. The, the reservation's booked up basically immediately. Uh, I now, am, is it sorry to interrupt, but is it no, true no. that you cried when Oxheart was announced? You know, to I got to be a little going? weepy. Uh, <laughs> I wrote like a kind of overwrought elegy for it um, that I'm not really ashamed of. Maybe mm-hmm. I should be. <laughs> Don't be but, ashamed. But I, I had some great meals there, and, and I, I had great meals there with like, like different people. You know, like you, I, I think this happens whenever a significant restaurant closes. You think about like the meals you had there with your family or ex girlfriends. I mean, Absolutely. I went there with. Uh, one of the guys who founded Eater back when I was working for them. So a lot of memories in that. Yeah, restaurant. a lot of memories in, in that. In a place really and, short amount of time. And and I, you know, even uh, I even once got invited to family meal there. They used to do pizza every Monday, and I got I got to hang out with them for that once. So a lot of memories tied in Oxheart for me. But but I am intrigued by this new direction, uh, an a la carte menu, uh, more proteins. There's a steak on the menu, which is like kind of blows my mind. I never thought Justin would do something like that. Tell me so. about the steak. You know, so I don't know that much about it. I mean, I, I've seen sort of pictures. I think it's sort of cooked sous vide and then seared and then served with vegetables. Uh, 
Delish. And I, I don't have the menu description right in front of me to tell you what those vegetables are, but it, it looks good. You can see it on Instagram. Well, I'm going to have to try it out regardless. Yeah, I've, I've made my reservation and I, I may try to. But, but the good news is, even though the reservations are booked, they are holding some tables open for walk-ins. So if you show up that. like it. Yeah, so they've got a four-seat bar and like a two-top and a four-top, I think, that they're holding for walk-ins. That's great. So if you show up at 5 o'clock when they open, uh, you can probably get a table. If you show up late, right, this is mm-hmm. the secret to Cultivare, uh, go after 9. Yep. <laughs> That's a good yep. word. That's a good word. <laughs> go get a, go start with a drink at 8-Row Flint and then hit Cultivare late. Yeah. That's that's always been my secret to success. Uh, and then speaking of, of Cultivare and the Heights, I am really excited about golden bagels and coffee. I am too. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, I mean, we've needed bagels in the Heights for a really long time. Yeah. And Avi's going to do a great job. One of those, yeah, it's Avi and then a, a local attorney named Greg Goldstein who's like a really passionate food lover, home cook. And, and it's ambitious. It's not just going to be bagels. They're going to cure their own fish. They're going to yeah. have sandwiches. Mm-hmm. They're going to have pizza bagels. They bought a bagel oven, like a like kind of the quintessential bagel oven, and imported it from New York. So from that sense, I think the bagels are going to be made well. It's right on that hike and bike trail. Right, I, it's, it's basically like a half yeah. block from you guys. Mm-hmm. So I think right that, when I drive house, by, it looks there. great just looking in. Yeah, it's like bright yellow. Yeah. I think it's going to be really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that the Heights lacks for coffee shops necessarily, but I mean, really you can never, it, if Montrose is any indication, like you can never have too many. Well, and the bagel situation is a game changer for the Heights. Like what are your other bagel options right, right. now? You're, you're driving down Shepherd to hot bagel shop, which is a go-to for me because it's very convenient from my apartment to where the culture map office is. It's like a, a stopping point on my morning route, but it, you know. I, I would say as much as I like what they do, I think there's still some room for improvement. And so the sky's the limit for Golden. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And do you know if they'll do schmear? Uh, just because I love saying that word. But schmears <laughs> yes. or they will they, they do schmears. cream cheese? Oh, cool. They, they, okay. will, they will have cream cheese and they will have, you know, flavored cream cheese. Scallion. They're homemade everything. Yeah, I think oh, so. Fantastic. And awesome. of course, Avi Katz is supervising the coffee program and we all love Katz Coffee. Yeah. So. Mm-mm-mm. And then just one more, and just because I think it shows the extent to which, like, we all got barbecue religion the last five years. Like, mm-hmm. I grew up in Houston, Morgan. I know you grew up near Houston. Close, yeah. We never, we never had good, we never had really good barbecue. No. If you wanted really great barbecue, you had to drive to the Hill Country. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not the case anymore. And of course, one of the reasons is because our barbecue scene was dominated by chains like Pappas Barbecue that keep things kind of middle of the road, very lean. Uh, very mildly seasoned, you know, food for the masses. I understand. Safe. Yeah. Lucrative. Like, no doubt. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to me that they are opening something called the Delta Blues Smokehouse down in Webster that is going to feature, like, heavily smoked, heavily seasoned, I mean, for lack of a better word, Franklin-style barbecue. That's cool. Alongside steaks and some comfort food. I had someone refer to it uh, to me recently as Pappas STQ. Oh, <laughs> like they took their inspiration from Ronnie and kind of yeah. they're putting their spin on it. So I, interesting choice to do it in Webster. Well, there's nothing down there. Yeah. I mean, there's mm-hmm. nothing there. I, I mean, there are no uh, elevated barbecue restaurants. There's there's no kind of new school barbecue restaurants down there. The, the farthest south is Kellen's. Mm-hmm. So and they have a they have a lot of Pepe's stuff down there already. You know, Cito's yeah. dough, seafood, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think that part, I think they just. You know, they bought a, uh, it was like a restaurant barbecue thing down there and they just took that over and renovated it. The restaurant barbecue thing didn't work out? No, sadly. I, Weird. It, it seems like it should have. <laughs> uh, 
but so I'm super curious. And, and if you follow uh, their head R&D chef, Michael Velarde, on Instagram, the pictures are incredible. I mean, the food looks great. Cool. Well, so, they, you know, they're a chain, but they do everything really well. Everything's from scratch. That's a completely scratch kitchen. Um, they do have commissaries, but I've always been impressed with how tight that ship is run. I was just there yesterday, actually, interviewing uh, Georgia Pappas, and she grew up in, you know, uh, well, really, their flagship barbecue restaurant there. And she was explaining to me that the family started with the refrigeration business, and from there, you know, they grew into restaurants that have just remained um, completely local, completely family-owned, and every all the, the ingredients are, you know, locally sourced as much as possible. They haven't spilled over into doing this corporate thing. And the weird thing is, is, I mean, me not being from Houston, I actually always thought Tillman owned all the Pappas restaurants. So, <laughs> and that's terrible, right? So I go in there yesterday and I was like, they're seriously still family owned. This is fantastic. So I think they can, they can branch out and do a few really cool other They concepts. are super serious. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's going to be cool to see what they do. I think Julia and I eat at uh, Little Papacito's. Uh, more than any other restaurant in Houston in a given year, save and except maybe Rice Box. Yeah, hard to say no to half-price fajitas on Wednesday. Uh, their lunch is their lunch is really good, and it's not quite as crowded as dinner. I mean, I grew up eating at Papacitos. I mean, there was one in Stafford that's now in Sugarland that was close to where we grew up, and it was, you know, it was always a race. Uh, you'd sit down, and then. What would hit the table first, the fajitas or your, your drink order? So, <laughs> you know, they certainly are lightning fast. Yeah, lightning fast. My mother referred to it as the big fajita pot in the sky, which I don't think mom quite understands that they're not made in a pot. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> She's from New York. Um, but I do. Uh, so I'm, I'll, I'll have my eye on that. I, you know, I, I will be very curious to see how that comes. I will, I will drive to Webster to try. How far is Webster? How, how long so will that take? So it's basically to Clear Lake. So they're, they're, it's the NASA Road 1 exit. But then it's on the northbound side. So you make the U and then you come back. So I'd, I'd say with no traffic from downtown, you know, 20, 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Pricey uh, Uber Eats. Uh, yeah. It's a pricey huh? Uber Eats. No, no. This is, this, is a, this is a call me and carpool kind of situation. Yep. But, uh, but yeah, it'll be, I'll be real curious. And, and it, just, it feels like it's just going to be huge for them. Mm-hmm. And, and apparently they told, they told Greg Morago at the Chronicle that if this location works, then they're going to grow it. And they have such a footprint. I mean, it's very easy to imagine one in the Woodlands, one in Katy, one in Sugarland, mm-hmm. and on and on. If anyone can, they can. Right. And everything they do is super well thought out. Yeah. Um, so I do want to move on uh, because I, I keep calling 2017 the year of Hugo. Uh, it, it's really just seems <laughs> like the man can do no wrong. He opened Sochi, a Oaxacan restaurant downtown that uh, was on Eater's list of the 12 best new restaurants in the country. Of course, it also earned number one from Allison Cook on her list of... Uh, Houston's top 100 restaurants. That's right. Yeah. Uh, by the way, he won a James Beard Award finally on the sixth try as a finalist. So it comes as no surprise to me that the Southern Foodways Alliance has named has awarded him the Craig Claiborne Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, Morgan, I know you've been affiliated with the Southern Foodways Alliance for a while. Can you just tell us what this means? Like, what is the significance of this award? The I mean, to be recognized for that award, um, it's like get it's like the the it's the album of the year. It's the winning there's the nothing, Super Bowl. Yeah, it, there's not really outside of your James Beard Foundation. In my opinion, there's not a better award that one can get um, than the Craig Claiborne uh, Award from SFA. I've been a part of SFA for a number of years, 
And uh, where I where I think that the Beard Foundation can sometimes be looked at with an agenda, uh, the SFA is is really is really honest about their um, where they want to go and what they want to recognize as being a significant part of the South. And I think for for Hugo, um, someone from Oaxaca to move to uh, to the South and be so influential in his cooking, it's just. Uh, it's an incredible award for him to receive. And so well-deserving. I mean, that mm-hmm. man is kind and humble. Such and his story is so cool. Starting yep. out as a dishwasher downtown, uh, you know, cooking with his grandmother uh, over, they, he said that they used to have candles, no electricity, and they'd collect everything, you know, and just make it from 4 o'clock in the morning when the, the sun would come up until the sun would go down. And it's just so cool hearing his story. But he treats everyone like, they're his best friend, like yep. they're his family, eating within his home. Yeah, there's an SFA documentary about Hugo that was made, uh, maybe not directly in conjunction with this, but it, but as part of their uh, focus on uh, the Latino culture to the modern South. So I will have a link to that in the article that goes along with this podcast so that you can uh, you can take a look at that. Um, let me move on. We, uh, My colleague Marcy DeLuna rounded up some new happy hour options Uh we're running a little long, so I don't want to dwell too much. But Stephanie, did you pick a, a favorite new happy hour, something you want to check out? All right. So Café Azure. Am yes. I saying that one right? I, sh- I should be. I lived in France for a while. So um, I lived in Paris for about a year. And this one really excites me because they have the bite-sized croque monsieurs. I cannot go to happy hour and not eat. So I need – I mean, I love drinking, but – I've got to have the food with it, too. So that was really exciting to me. And the fact that it's from 5 to 7, that was also pretty cool. Yeah, a little now, bit later. And they do things so well. So you can't get anywhere in Houston. If you leave the office even at 4, you're not getting there until 5.30. Traffic is so bad around that time that these happy hours need to be a little bit longer. And some of those places on the list looked awesome. But if your happy hour stops at 5, I'm sorry. I'm probably not going to make it. <laughs> so that was that was my top one. And then uh, Milano Bar. That one, they kind of have just this, I mean, they have everything. Uh, and, it, and it's affordable. And it, mm-hmm. it's just yeah. one of those places where you should go with a group of friends, I think. Well, and really, if you're in the city center area, I mean, that is the place for a legit cocktail. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where I would go. Yeah. So, so those were, I mean, any any place is a great place for a cocktail. But those those two really stood out to me. So, so the one that I am particularly excited about is Yawacha. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's been kind of trendy to sort of be like, I don't understand why that place is a Michelin star. I mean, if I, I think their dumplings are delicious. I don't know, Morgan, have you been there? I've not, and I'm embarrassed to say that. All right, well, that you can add that to yeah. your your list, uh, and maybe this will get you to go now because they're doing eight dollar cocktails and six dollar. They have like eight small plates for six dollars each from four to six. That's killer. So that is good. Yeah. it's it's a really affordable way to try, and and it's the stuff that you want, right? It's it's kind of the basic dim sum type dumplings, mm-hmm. um, which I have really enjoyed. I, I was less impressed by like the the bigger ticket like fish items, and they mm-hmm. have a have like a two hundred dollar duck with caviar that I'm trying to figure out how to make somebody else buy me. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, curious, I'm curious, but I'm not two hundred dollars curious. So, but you know, if you if you haven't been to Iwachi yet. That happy hour is a really good way, a, a, a very affordable way to give them a shot. And of course, uh, I mean, you know, for people that work in the Galleria, like uh, those of us at Gal Media, it's a, it's a very tempting new option. And then uh, let's, uh, all right, let's put a pin in the news of the week with a, a quick discussion. Uh, we are in the middle of fall food event season. 
Uh, it seems like every weekend there is something new and exciting to go to. Uh, this weekend is the Butcher's Ball out in Brenham. Can't it's going to have... Oh, will you be there? I will be there. Are you going to be there? I'm going to be there. Ugh. Tell people about the Butcher's Ball. Okay. So, um, I mean, from what I know, we had uh, Felix on the show from Ritual yes. uh, recently. Flores. Yes. And we also had Alba from... Um, Juniper? Julep. 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 Here we go. That shot's already getting to me, you guys. Um, two two amazing places, two great talents, and they're giving back to ranchers and farmers who are affected by Harvey, which I thought was really cool. Um, lots of meat. There's a chef cook-off. There's a breakfast thing this year as well. Yeah, there's doing, a right? butchery competition going down. Morgan, have you seen this? I know you have some. No, is it like this. speed butchery? Like everybody's No, so to... it's going to be like a Cajun boucherie okay. versus like the Mexican version of that. Um, so it's like six chefs that are like kind of Cajun Creole, like uh, I know Graham Laborde's on that team. Yeah. And then like uh, I know Teddy Lopez from Killin's SDQ is going to be on the, it- the Mexican side and, and a whole bunch of other folks. And so that's going to kick the morning off. Then they'll have the like the eating competition part with 18 chefs, uh, live butchery demonstrations, panel discussions. If you're interested in sustainable food and that, that element of food culture, uh, that's going to be a great one. And then uh, the following weekend, uh, we're going to just talk about Southern Smoke for a hot second. Yeah, Southern Smoke started, um, I guess this is our third year to be involved in Southern Smoke. Uh, Antonio Gianola, a few years ago, was diagnosed with multiple uh, sclerosis. And Southern Smoke kind of just started out of the uh, the desire to raise as much cash as we can for the, uh, the MS Foundation and, and support the research in figuring out how to, uh, to cure it. Um, this year with Harvey... Obviously, uh, being so fresh in our minds, uh, we decided for for one year to divert all of the the, the money we're raising for uh, through the Southern Smoke Foundation to donate that to people in need for Harvey. And we didn't really stop there uh, because we were, we were sitting around drinking one night. I mean, not drinking one night. <laughs> drinking every night. And, uh, and we're like, you know, we've got a lot of people in the restaurant and hospitality community in Houston that have been affected uh, by Harvey. I know everybody in our restaurants uh, had somebody for for the lack of, you know, we had three right. or four Somebody's people. car got flooded. Somebody's house got flooded. Yeah, our general manager at 8-Row lost, you know, she'd just closed in her house three weeks before and um, had several feet of water in that. And so uh, we had a lot of people really caught off guard by this. So plus, we said, Plus you were big on the... Um the curfew, right? A lot of people yeah. lost a lot of money. Yeah, and I know that we're all in reactionary mode to a storm like that. There's no real way to make every perfect decision on the fly. But um, what we what we wanted to do was be able to give directly to um, hospitality industry people in Houston that, that were affected by this. So through the 501c3 that Southern Smoke exists under, we weren't able to 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 give to write checks directly from Southern Smoke Foundation, so we partnered with Legacy Healthcare, um, and 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 kind of joined hands, and they have the ability to write those checks. So we are we're working through Legacy Healthcare. Um, all we need to all we need from people in the industry that were affected by Harvey, um, go to the Southern Smoke website, uh, get on there, log in, send us an email. There's an application. Uh, it's a very simple process. Uh, we didn't want this to get bogged down, um, but we will we will be looking through applications and uh, cutting checks real quick. Um, I know Chris Shepard had said too um, 
anyone from dishwashers. To, yeah. If you work at Jack in the Box at the counter, it doesn't matter. You don't no, have to be in a No, you don't have to be in a fancy restaurant in Houston. This, this yeah. is you anyone, don't have to be part of the cool kids. Anyone in the service industry is Hey, is if good you to work go. at Jack in the Box, I'm pretty sure I'm hanging out with you too. Yeah, <laughs> You're cool. We've all, we've all cool as well. hung out at about 2 o'clock in the morning. Oh, so heck fun. yes. <laughs> My biggest hero. And then, of course, uh, the news this week is that uh, David Chang from New York is now on the roster. Huge news. I knew this was in the works for a while, but like couldn't talk about it. And I know Chris and Lindsay especially were just dying to get this out, but that's a that's a huge get. No, and he's been incredibly supportive of this process. I know he had uh, Chris Shepard and Justin Yu on the uh, House of Carbs podcast on mm-hmm. the Ringer, uh, which is a national, you know, has a national audience and got some money raised that way. So, I mean, props to David Chang for being so supportive of Houston, and and it will be great to see him on October twenty second at Southern Smoke. Uh, I do just very briefly want to also mention that the the following weekend, October 28th, Chefs Unmasked happening at the Four Seasons. Uh, Hugo Ortega, Chris Shepard will be joined by uh, Richard Sandoval, who's got like 40-something restaurants all over the world. Uh, He's the supervisor for Bayou and Bottle in the Four Seasons. And more importantly, uh, Michael Mina, one of the the most acclaimed chefs in America. Uh, And the fun thing about that is it's going to be like tasting stations. So all the chefs will be there serving you. You'll get the chance to interact with them. It's going to have a like a masquerade theme, so you can wear a mask, dress up a little bit. Uh, that should be a really special event, and that's going to support the Hospitality Workers Relief Fund that the Greater Houston Restaurant Association set up. So none of these events are cheap, um, but hopefully the quality of the experience justifies the expense. And I love that everyone's giving back to help out big time this year. I mean, yeah, we're it's all been insane cool. to see how many people come together like – I had restaurant people from all over the country calling, texting, emailing, like, how can we be involved? Uh, Julian and Preston Van Winkle texted me, and um, they're like, what can we do? Can we come down and do a bourbon tasting at somebody's house? Do you want to bring somebody up to Buffalo Trace, and we'll do a barrel pick with y'all and do some? I mean, it's insane how many cool things people were just willing to throw out and donate for their time. Yeah, and the Southern Smoke silent auction this year is pretty epic. Uh, Some of it is... Some of it is online now. Uh, more of it will be online uh, by the time the event rolls around. But but if you uh, if you've been looking for an extravagant present for someone who is appropriately food food or wine obsessed, uh, this is going to be a a real opportunity to give someone a very memorable experience. You two keep teasing me with this Southern Smoke thing, and I was telling you earlier, I have my brother's wedding that weekend, and I am seriously yeah. Can he move it? I mean, missing there... the wedding. Yes, yeah, ser- I, I got to have a chat with him because really Southern Smoke. Brothers Better wedding. planning. <laughs> All right. That that does it for the news of the week. We will be right back with a brief look at the restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So for our restaurants of the week, I want to talk about a couple of dining experiences I had recently, and then I'm going to turn it over to you guys to talk about your first impressions of one Chris Shepard's new version of One Fifth. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to start by talking about the new lunch menu at Killen's STQ, they are open for lunch now, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I think from 11 to 2.30. Mm-hmm. But, you know, STQ has basically been packed since the day they opened. It's been one of the toughest reservations in the city to book. Uh, I will say I went to their first Friday lunch service and walked right in at 1 o'clock. So if you've been reluctant to, if, you, if you've been unable or reluctant to commit to STQ, uh, give it a shot at lunch. I, I had maybe one of the best burgers I've had in like the last year there. Whoa. Uh, 
So it's it's their custom grind that includes some dry aged uh, steak trimmings, which is always a winner for me. And then they they cover it with the onions from their French onion soup that they cook down until they're just yeah. like like falling apart basically. I'm like, so hungry right now. This yeah, this is bad. this is really unfair of me to do this to you. And then they cover it in gooey Gugere Gruyere cheese, easy for me to say. It it came with like lettuce, onions, and tomatoes. I didn't put them on there because mm-hmm. it doesn't need it. And then they also do these like epic, large, like crispy onion rings that were just fantastic. So for those reasons alone, it's worth going. Uh, they're also deep frying pork ribs, which were pretty good. Uh, they're doing uh, dry aged brisket uh, sliced with some pickled vegetables that that we really liked. And then they have these Jamaican jerk wings that look really good, but we were limited by stomach capacity uh-huh. and budget. So that will get me back there. Uh, Can't wait to try that one out. Yeah, I know STQ is one of your I, favorites. I, it is. Yeah, I'm I'm there every once in a while. <laughs> I still haven't made it over there. Another. Oh my gosh, Morgan, you're I'm killing me. Embarrassing. Killing me. I'll be honest. I know you're a busy guy. Yeah. And then uh, the one other one is that uh, Riel Restaurant, one of my favorite uh, new openings of the year, has rolled out a brunch menu. Uh, Ryan Lashane told me that he hasn't served brunch since he worked at Stella Sola, which, considering that restaurant has been closed since like 2012, is a long time. Mm. But they're doing some cool stuff. Uh, the the one dish that I was particularly happy with are these, uh, they call them ham donuts. They're basically beignets Ooh. with uh, slices of chopped up Benton's ham in the middle. And then they, they arrive like dipped in this really rich cheese sauce. And you can add an egg on top. So it's basically like a bite-sized uh, croque monsieur. I'm drooling over here. I'm seriously, because I'm not a sweets person at all. So I will be there for that. Yeah. And then awesome. they're also doing chicken fried frog's legs with a herb waffle that comes with this like really sweet, addictive cane butter. Interesting. Yeah. Men on that. Yeah. I'm, I'm down with frog's legs as the next like hot food trend. Well, that had a minute like six or seven years ago. It had a minute start. after Katrina. Yes. When the, when like the shrimpers and the crawfish farmers like couldn't, couldn't harvest those particular crops. Frogs. So and they I'm, were big and delicious. Were they? Okay, yeah. that was my question. Yeah, they weren't are little they, measly. They're not little no. tiny. No, these were big. Skinny. I mean, these are like, you know, two finger widths, basically. Huh. Like you, These are like frogs you don't want to see in a, okay. in a while. Yep. All right. I yeah. could dig it. It's kind of a scary Tastes frog. like chicken? We'll go with that. Okay. Uh, it's got like a, a little <laughs> bit more of a funk to it than chicken. But I mean, a little but it's, swamp it's, funk. It's it's fried. I mean, it's it's extremely delicious. It's very juicy. It's 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 like really well brined chicken. Okay, I'll go there. Um, and then Stephanie, I know you went to One Fifth recently to try the Romance Languages menu. What did you think? You know what I oh, I love everything Chris Shepard does. Um, and their first concept with One Fifth steak was phenomenal. And I went there last week of service. And um, I'm so sad it was the last week. However, with Romance Languages, um, I was equally as impressed, I'd have to say. Um, the the way Chris did the pasta and the truffles and the pairings with it were just phenomenal. His carbonara, out of this world. Um, if you're afraid to try things that are a little more interesting off the beaten path. It may not be the best place for, you know, someone who's not as adventurous, but if you're okay with, you know, just, just trying something like duck heart, the duck heart bolognese. bolognese yeah. yeah. And I will say Wonderful. like, if, if you're on the fence about trying some duck heart bolognese, Do it. some of that kind of thing, this is the place you need to try it. Um, uh, or don't, don't right, look at the menu, just like order. It, because if you don't like it there, you're never going to like yeah, it. Yeah, you can tap out on no. that. Like, okay, maybe Duck Hart's not for me. 
it's uh, one of those things where I think if someone didn't read that it was duck heart, but then they ate it, they'd be yeah, like, absolutely. that is so absolutely. much better than anything, any sort of spaghetti I've ever had. So it was fantastic. I mean, from start to finish, uh, we we probably had a share of maybe eight different dishes. And of course, mm-hmm. Chris brought a couple extra things out and he had um, some house cured prosciutto as well uh, that he does there. Oh, it's phenomenal. Well, and they make the guanciale for the carbonara, which is just incredible. Like that's a lot of work. Yeah. I, I will be back. So I'm glad I went in there basically what their second week of opening. So I still have a, a full, what, eight months. Yeah, you have all left. the way until the end of July. Yeah, I'll, I'll be back very soon. And then, Morgan, I know you went there. What were yeah, a couple of dishes we, you like? Well, we went right before we left for France for two weeks. And it was literally the, the meal the night before we left the next the day. The kickoff party. The kickoff party. And, um, you know, eating in Houston and being involved in the Houston restaurant scene for the last uh, eight or 10 years, it's like, there was a time when you would travel and then eat some amazing food and be kind of lamenting the fact that you were going back to Houston and the, it just wasn't going to be the same. And I can say the second we walked out of one fifth, they had, they'd been open for four days. It's like I think the, the fourth day of service. The ship was so tight. The execution was so good. We left and we we're like, man, I know we're going to be spending the next two weeks in France, but I can't wait to come back here. Mm-hmm. Like we, the, there's so much technique that he's um, he's pulling off. I think the the dishes are a lot more nuanced than he's uh, kind of cooked in the past. Mm-hmm. And then it's a complete departure from steak. I mean, Absolutely. In, a, in a really yeah. And they even changed up the cool look way. of the place. They put that canopy yeah. over the bar. They put those fabric panels in. It looks different. It looks great. It feels different. Yeah. yeah um, a, the snail on well fruit. Done. I mean, I know that. Oh, so good. That's one of those things that if you you know if you're not in, into snails or you like this is Try a vehicle. Yeah, it was this awesome. Is, yeah, let's just do it. I just think Chris Shepard amazes me, though, because here's a man who basically wanted to take something that he's not good at and he, he doesn't know how to do and do it. He pushed without himself a any, lot with this yeah, menu. without any practice. I mean, he went to Italy a few weeks before they opened, honestly, mm-hmm. and oh, he it's amazing. And Nick Fine's done a fantastic job there as well. Yeah, no, we had, yep. I had Nick and Chris on the podcast a couple of weeks before they opened, and I didn't know Nick very well, but his enthusiasm is so infectious. He's his, great. Yeah, it was it was really fun. Um, all right, we are running long, so I'm going to put a pin in Restaurants of the Week, and then we'll be right back with a more in-depth conversation with Morgan Weber of Agricole Hospitality, so stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? Our interview this week is... Brought to you by our friends at Eighth Wonder Brewery, one of my favorite local breweries, conveniently located in East Downtown. I mean, you can find Eighth Wonder on tap walls and on store shelves all over the city, but there is something really special about visiting the brewery, whether it's for a soccer game or a baseball game. You know, certainly with the local baseball team in the playoffs, it's a it's going to be an exciting fall here in Houston, and there's really no place better to go before a game than Eighth Wonder Brewery. You can have a couple of pints, maybe AstroTurf, their dry hopped cream ale that's new and in stores, or maybe their Side Hustle, which is a barrel-aged version of Haterade, their Goza. And of course, one of the fun things about going to Eighth Wonder's Brewery is that you have the Eatsy Boys food truck there. They have a new menu full of all sorts of new things to try. And just recently, they added David Attic's 36-foot-tall statues of the Beatles John, Paul, George, and Ringo rendered in concrete in their Sgt. Pepper gear. And if you're a real Beatles fan, you'll notice that they're not positioned as they would have been on stage. 
I think that may be done just to infuriate hardcore Beatles fans, or maybe it's an accident, I don't know. But definitely check out Eighth Wonder, have a beer, have a bite from the YouTube boys, and enjoy this uh, fall weather that we all know is right around the corner. Thank you to Eighth Wonder, and here is our interview of the week. So we've already had Morgan Weber for the first two segments, but uh, now we're going to dive in on some of what he is doing in a little more detail. Uh, Morgan, the last time you were on the show, I asked you about rumors that you were opening a distillery and you kind of said, well, maybe I can't really talk about it. Um, And then like two weeks later, you announced that you're opening a distillery. Tell us a little bit about what Indianola is kind of what your, your vision for it is. Let's, let's start. Yeah. I mean, it started out originally kind of when we, when we were looking at doing something in East downtown uh, with agricultural hospitality, uh, we had a that's a thirty thousand square foot space that Agricole's going into that the um, pizzeria and Indianola, the restaurant, and then Miss Carousel are going into, and we had this massive space next door, so we thought, all right, I've been a little bit obsessed with cocktails and booze and such for a while. Um, in with my personality type, this is an obvious next step. Like, if I'm going to collect obsessively bourbon and get into the history of all that, like there is an inevitably going to be a part of me that wants to learn how to make it and wants to obsess over how to make it better than I think um, other people are making it. And that's a super, like, I don't want that to come off in the wrong way. Like that sounded, but I, but I it's just, natural to want to put your spin on it, right? If you were right. a chef and you were like, I love Italian food, I want to open an Italian restaurant. Yeah. No one would think you were arrogant. Right. So we, I started thinking about this uh, years ago and then crossed paths with Dave Piccarell um, in Kansas City, Missouri, at Rieger and Company, uh, Jay Rieger and Company Distillery, which had just launched and opened. A uh, good buddy of mine, Ryan Maybe, uh, led the cocktail scene in the late 2000s by opening um, Manifesto in Kansas City in the Midwest, where you would never expect a cocktail bar of that quality to exist. Um, Dave and I crossed paths at the distillery because Ryan wasn't there and we got to talking and uh, hit it off. And over the next, over the course of two and a half years, uh, planned and planned and planned. And I thought he, he was going to get super frustrated in, in the process and be like, hey, you're never actually going to do anything. We've eventually got to do something. So um, every time we, we came to the, the point in which we thought we knew exactly what we were going to do, like build the distillery in East downtown next to um, uh, Dallas and St. Emmanuel, we would get introduced to somebody new or an, another opportunity would present itself. And um, over the course of about a year, it went from the idea of the small distillery in East downtown to now a, a, real, a much more significant sized plan for the future. Right. Cause you're working with a couple of distilleries. You, yeah. you're, you're not actually building a distillery, at least not yet. Not yet. Um, there are plans to do a brick and mortar, but we, what we really wanted to do was focus our energy and our time and our cash on uh, developing products and brands that we were really, really excited about. Um, like this Speaking delicious of, peach yes. brandy. Yeah. <laughs> we're and, looking at it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, peach brandy is something that I've been interested in for a really long time. It's like, I know 10 years ago, and I was, I've in the past been somewhat critical of the wine industry in Texas for taking that whole Fredericksburg area and trying to, you know, put a square peg in a round hole. Like maybe wine isn't 
the thing that does the best right around the Fredericksburg area. We do have places in uh, in North Texas that uh, grow fantastic wine grapes, but you know the Fredericksburg area was already really well established as a peach growing region. And I'm like, we can do the same thing with peaches that we do with um, you know grapes for brandy for this or that. I just never understood why no one was making a peach brandy. Peach brandy uh, was is considered kind of America's native spirit in that when uh, immigrants came over in this, uh, the early part of the 13 colonies to establish life here, they came with all these traditions of making cider and with making uh, whiskey, uh, but they didn't have any resources from which to make that stuff. So they, they take this brutal trip coming people die along the way you know they get to this awful land that they don't know anything about and at the end of the day they don't even have anything available to drink to get them drunk to forget about how bad it is to to wake up the next day and do it all again right that's depressing (laughs) so um as industrialists you know we figured out very quickly that peaches put on uh fruit that is viable for making fermented spirits from uh, two years faster than apples. So the whole eastern seaboard uh, starts growing peach trees uh, and distilling them eventually into uh, peach brandy. So it's it's something that from the 1880s um, moving into the 20th century uh, just kind of fell off the, the, the grid. I tasted some peach brandy made by Breckenridge uh, Distillery. They had one barrel of it in Colorado uh, a few years ago and thought, man, this is really cool. I've always been into Calvados, which is apple brandy from uh, the Normandy region of France. Uh, and I just thought, man, there's got to be something for peaches. This has got to be, we got to bring this back. All right. Well, let's let's have a sip of this. And yeah. then, yep. uh, so is this it, for sipping or for shooting? No, this, the... I mean, I, I sip it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it's great in cocktails, but I love it neat. It's so fragrant. It almost smells like fake peaches. It does. It smells, I mean... Smellivision or smell radio would be great right now, you guys, because it does. It smells beautiful. It smells like it'd be really sweet, but it's soft. It no, it's really got a, soft. it's got a really nice fruity peach, like ripe peaches, not like the crappy supermarket peaches. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so this lovely. one, um, when we were starting this, the planning process of all this and really getting down to the end, we uh, were introduced through Dave Picarell to uh, the Lovell family in North Georgia. Um, Carlos Lovell had been a moonshiner his entire life, illegal moonshining, uh, ran spirits to New York City for the better part of 40 years, and at the age of 93 years old decides uh, he wants to, uh, to get legal. And they, they've, they've, they built a, a really nice little distillery in North Georgia right at the foothill of the Appalachian Mountains uh, where he started grow, uh, making whiskey for the first time in his 93-year life legally. Uh, a few years into that, he got Alzheimer's and had to step away and the family didn't want to keep it going. So, uh, I flew out there, tasted through their inventory. They had about a thousand barrels and got to talking with his daughter, Carlene, about, you know, kind of their whole family history, what the story is about this whiskey, um, how it was made. And I realized very quickly, like, this is a story that needs to be really told well. Like this is... I think it's it's very um, uh, standard issue now in the craft distilling movement to go buy somebody else's whiskey, bottle it as your own, and then call it a day, and then act like it's your own. 
And uh, I th- with, a, with a fake backstory to go with it. Right, with a fake backstory to go with it. And I'm sitting here at dinner in this little quaint hotel uh, restaurant in southern Appalachia. And she's telling me their family story. And I'm like, this is insane. The, the whiskey tastes really good. And the story is insane. And this is a dying thing. I mean, this is they were malting. One of the interesting things about the, the whiskey, um, we're, we'll get to the peach brandy in a little bit. But one of the interesting things about the whiskey is that they were malting corn, which was is not normally seen in the bourbon uh, making process. You usually use a mix of corn, rye or wheat, and then malted barley. Well, they would use a little bit of malted barley, but it was an Appalachian tradition to also malt corn. You need the malt uh, in, enzyme uh, for, to help the fermentation along. Without it, it just gets stuck. But uh, we tasted through it, and I was just blown away. Can I ask you about tasting through a thousand barrels? Didn't whiskey? taste through all okay. thousand barrels. All right. No, <laughs> I was gonna say any story <laughs> would sound great. That's, then that's, that's it? a day right. There. <laughs> that's a day right there. No, we would we would just walk through their warehouse and tasted through barrel sample after barrel sample, and um, enough. We probably tasted through thirty or forty, mm-hmm. and it was enough to say, okay, this is this is really interesting stuff, and um, it all kind of tells its own story. Yeah, we got the Each. deal done, and um, we'll so be then, launching that in quarter one. Uh, right, and and when does the peach brandy come out? Okay, so the peach brandy, I'm walking around the warehouse and I see just some stuff kind of set aside, and I'm like, "What is all that?" And Carlene's like, "Well, that's that's the peach brandy that Daddy made in 2012." Done. And I was like, <laughs> "Can you tell me a little bit more about that?" Because I assumed, and typically when you see peach brandy on a label, it's neutral grain spirit with like peach puree added. And it's mm. kind of like a liqueur, yeah. and it tastes yeah. good. But I'm—I've always been in that Calvados headspace for mm-hmm. peach brandy. And she said, "Well, you know, we had this farmer that came in, and he had like two truckloads of peaches that he couldn't sell, and so Daddy took them and uh, fermented them, and then ran them through the still, and that's what all that is. We never really sold much of it. Wow! And I was like, you 'You've got to be kidding! Let's crack a bottle open.' And we tried it, and it was mind blowing. Yeah, it's it's delicious. So I guess so this is ready to go. Like this is So this is we actually uh we're letting it age a little bit longer. Um it was all bottled at barrel strength and um I was I I feel like the the things that make bourbon delicious, um the wood, the vanillin, mm-hmm. the the caramelized nature of all that, all of those go well with peaches too. Mm-hmm. So uh sounds like dessert. we sent some barrels over, um some new barrels over uh, a couple of months ago. And we dumped all of those bottles back into the barrel. So this is the. Uh, this was only on wood for about two weeks. Um, we're going to leave. We're going to start tasting through those barrels in about two months. It doesn't take a lot for the extraction to happen. Let me know if you need any help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but this will be ready in uh, at the same time that the whiskey's released. All right. And then you're also making your own bourbon. Yeah. So new distilleries typically. Um, the you know bourbon takes a certain amount of time to age, so they they jump that process with higher heat and smaller barrels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you have been critical of that approach in the past. So yeah, so what are you doing instead of that? So um, Texas is humid. It's very humid and it's very hot. Uh, that typically speeds along the extraction process with the wood, right? So the humidity is going to bring a lot more spice to it. And the, the heat and the barometric pressure going in and out of the wood is going to uh, just speed that extraction of the... Uh, there's two extractions that happen in bourbon uh, 
the first one happens within the first two years. And then as the, the whiskey starts to, to break down the cell structure of the barrels over the next like two or three years, a different extraction, all the like really good stuff happens on the second extraction. You get all the color and all the char on the first extraction. So um, if you have really hot uh, environment that's speeding that up, um, we wanted to slow it down. So our cooperage uh, that we've worked with, um, we're taking more of a winemaker's approach to the first part of the barrel building process where we're doing really long toasts. We're using um, wood that has been air dried outside for a lot longer than is typically uh, standard in the bourbon industry. Um, that toast happens without charring the inside of the barrel. But as we know, to legally be called bourbon, we have to have a charred, a new oak mm-hmm. charred barrel. Um, so we're doing a really light char number three after this really long hand toasting. So the hand toasting and hanging out, uh, the wood hanging out in the elements for a longer period of time helps start that cell structure breaking down, the same thing that happens with the alcohol over the course of a year. So it that happens a little quicker. We're not doing that to speed it up. We're just doing that to um, to get more complexity in the in the final product. So that's just, now we're just talking about barrels, right? Um, we're also working with several farmers in the, uh, in the Texas area and in the Kentucky area to grow two different varieties of um, heirloom corn. Uh, one that was specific to Texas in the 1860s um, called Texas Gourd Seed. It's a white dent corn um, or a cousin to the white dent corn. It's got a huge endosperm, which is the each kernel is, you know, has an endosperm. We'll keep this uh, PG. Very, very, uh, yeah, we just, this is very... Uh, <laughs> this is getting nerdy. Plant biology, yeah, yeah. Plant biology, but um, it's a very soft corn and it ferments really well. Uh, we found through Glenn Roberts at Anson Mills in Columbia, South Carolina, he's, he's found uh, documents in East Texas newspapers discussing, you know, how moonshiners used to love this stuff in the late 1800s, and then it just kind of fell off the face of the earth. So we're starting with that. We're going back to every little element that we possibly can uh, regardless of how difficult and painful the brain damage is along the way. And uh, it's to create something that, you know, we're proud of mm-hmm. in the end. You're bringing back the old school, yeah. revisiting right. the past I mean, a little. Houston, it's safe to say, doesn't really have a craft distillery that's quite this ambitious. I mean, there are there are distilleries in Houston, but they, I mean, do you sort of look at something like Koval and think like you want your version of, Something like that, man. I mean, it's honestly, if if we were to compare ourselves to anybody, I love the obsession that um, St. George Spirits in California approaches everything with. Uh, I'm not overly concerned with what other people are doing. I just know how we want to do it, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, you you mentioned the small barrel. That's kind of uh, I think we've moved through that with a lot of the bourbon distilleries in Texas, and and people are realizing that that's not really the right way to go, so they're moving away from it. Um, we're starting with hogsheads. So your standard issue barrel is 53 gallons in the bourbon industry. Um, our cooperage is making the same size barrels that Scotch is aged in. So we're trying to do bigger barrels and slow down that whole process as well. Mm. And then the, the one other thing is everyone in the restaurant industry that I've talked to about this um, doesn't understand how you're doing it from like a TABC standpoint, mm-hmm. because I, I know I've had, I, I mean, I know I, I had a conversation once with uh, Brock Wagner from St. Arnold. who was like, yeah. I would love to invest in a restaurant, uh, but then they couldn't have a liquor license. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could, we, I have an incredible liquor attorney in, in Austin and, um, 
without getting into the the minutia like I just did the barrel and boring everybody, uh, it took it took a lot of figuring out because you don't want to even come close to crossing tiers um, in the TABC right. system. You can't, you can't both produce alcohol and then sell it to the public. That's or distribute it. Like right. those, we were a, a, a distinctive three-tier system. So um, through some trusts that we set up and um, I had to divest myself from our liquor licenses and mm-hmm. go through all that process, but uh, it was it was a lot of brain damage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to get legal. Have, we do have some other, uh, some other topics to discuss. I know... Uh, Early voting is about to start. Uh, Voters in the Houston area will have Proposition F to consider. Well, no, I guess not in the Houston area, specifically in the the dry part of the Heights. We already voted to allow uh, grocery stores and retail outlets to sell alcohol or at least wine and beer in the Heights. Um, And now we have Proposition F, which, well, why don't you just explain kind of what that is and and why you're in favor of it? Yeah, well, since 1915, I believe it was... uh, when the city of the Heights, which was the first technical suburb of the city of Houston, was chartered to the city of Houston, it was done so under the auspice that it would forever and always remain dry unless the community of that little, na- that little neighborhood, that little map in the middle, decided to vote otherwise to make it wet. So HEB comes in last year. Uh, they want to build right in the middle of that, and alcohol is a, a major part of their... Right. Margins are margins of the grocery yeah. industry are thin. Mm-hmm. The margins on beer and wine are better. It's a little bit better. Um, so the conversation started. Um, I, I spoke with Scott McClellan uh, many times throughout that process and uh, realized that for that moment, maybe at least as far as HEB was concerned, just focus on beer and wine sales for, for retail. So as disappointed as all of the Heights restaurants and bars were, uh, it, the the major passing of that in last year's election kind of gave us the confidence to move forward right. with this. And, and we should explain that, that your uh, restaurants, uh, Cultivare and 8 Row Flint, both operate under club licenses, which means that when you go there, you have to swipe your driver's license to join mm-hmm. the private club. There's a whole bunch of record-keeping requirements associated with that. And then I, I didn't know this until fairly recently. You can't get liquor delivered. You have we to can't go- get liquor delivered, and we pay a higher price uh, percentage from our class B as a markup on everything that we bring in. So the liquor that we bring in is automatically more expensive than every other bar outside of the dry zone is, is paying in Houston. Wow. Right. So. Which is, which is complicated when, you know, if, like, you know, you want a bourbon at eight row Flinter cultivare, uh, you know, and Heights beer garden is, you know, maybe a half mile away they're in the wet zone, you're in the dry zone, so just automatically your operating costs. Are yeah, so we can't charge more for that product because that, you know, the 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 drinker's mindset's already set. Like you can't Right. It's a $10 shot, right. whatever. Mm-hmm. They're not they don't really care. They're like, "Well, you decided you would, you know, show up and build a restaurant in this neighborhood, so you just got to deal with that." I was like, "I get that, and we did that, but if we also have the opportunity to um make life a little bit easier and a little bit better on all the independent restaurant restaurants and bars that are in the Heights that I think at this point we can safely say have contributed a lot to the Heights. Um, you know, stand behind your independent guys and help them out. Well, and I think, I think that's going to be the pushback from the voters perspective is you already have such a thriving restaurant scene in the Heights. What's the benefit? Is there, is there a benefit to the consumers or is this really just about, 
making it more efficient for business? That's a really good question. I mean, I, I look at going back to your, uh, I'm going to get back to that and answer it hopefully through this other channel, but a good restaurant in the city of Houston will hopefully, um, hopefully get 15% of net profit at the end of the year. If they're running it pretty tightly, bars can kind of get a little bit above that, but there's a lot of waste. There's a lot of spillage. There's, you know, um, so with, with tacking an extra 10 to 12% onto our liquor sales at the class B, just in order for us to buy alcohol to sell in the Heights, you're, you're really cutting into that net profit at the end of the year that makes it worth running a restaurant or not worth running a restaurant. Um, so I, I think good. So so for example, if you're if you're the sort of person who's concerned about the rate at which, especially bars and restaurants in the Heights seem to be opening and closing, mm-hmm. do you think that like passing this proposition would slow that process down a little bit? Yeah, it eases pressures? it up. Yeah. I mean, I th- I think especially I had I had a conversation with a lady from the Houston Press today um, about this topic, and I was and she said, you know, have y'all been affected much? Your business been affected much by Harvey? And I was like everybody inside the loops business has been affected by Harvey. Like everybody is slow right now. Um, so you, you so, so that means cultivar is only on like a 45 minute wait. Like <laughs> we, we, we start a little bit later and we end a little bit faster. That, that sweet spot is still busy, but um, you know, I'm Chris is texting me. I'm texting Seth. Everybody's like, how is everything tonight? Like it might be a Monday or a Tuesday night. And um Everybody is in a lot of pain right now. And then you, you move into the heights where you add the extra pain of, the, um, of all the dollars you spend at the end of the day just managing the private club license and all the back and forth of transactions and the three different bank accounts and all that, plus the higher expense of getting the alcohol into you, plus going and picking it up versus uh, having it delivered to you. It's... it's for me, it's like if you if you care that this is going to keep going in the heights, like if you care about independent restaurants moving forward, this is an easy no brainer. Um, last year with the uh, the HEB election, a lot of people came to me and they're like, "Well, you know, this is going to usher in you know your Outback Steakhouses, your Chili's, your your Fertitta uh, joints." I'm like, don't for a second think that if Tillman wanted to be in the heights, he couldn't put somebody on that one little dry thing to handle it. Yeah, he's got some guy in the accounting like, department. That yeah, like, I, that's I, I a, suspect if he wanted to be in the Heights, he would have bought the hunky-dory space. He would have oh, yeah. bought the whole Heights. Yeah, it would have been super easy. So um, this is not something that's going to keep people out. It's just going to, it will help everyone along so, so much um, with just the, the day-to-day strife in, in handling this thing. All right, and then, I do. I do want to ask you about one other thing. I know you have a deep affection for older, dusty bottles of bourbon found at uh, like estate sales mm-hmm. and, and on the back of shelves. But this is fall release season for bourbons. There's a lot of choices out there. Um, are there any new bottles that you've tried that you think people should be hunting down, or that like, you know, because like it's it, it's impossible to find Weller Twelve anymore on a shelf. Yeah. So what are what are some of the things that people Man. out there could look for when i'm at home i'm a i'm a simpleton i uh i think when people come to my house outside of a pretty decent dusty collection like the modern bourbon is pretty standard issue like i i love um henry mckenna from uh heaven hill it's a 10 year old bottled in bond and it's like 26 bucks uh i i'm partial right now to 
every single barrel that we have on the menu at Eight Row Flint. And that's not a shameless plug for Eight Row Flint, but they're just so different than the regular uh, uh, releases of the brands that you can find on the liquor store shelf. I would love to figure out how we can partner with like Houston Wine Merchant or somebody like that to get our single barrels onto a retail shelf. Um, because I think it would like that would answer your question so fast. Be like, go to Houston Wine Merchant and get our single barrel of this, or go to Houston Wine Merchant and get our single barrel of that. Yeah, because I had a little bit of the the Russell's Reserve single barrels at both uh, Bad News Bar and at uh, Poison Girl, and you know, I mean, a bottle of Russell's Reserve is like thirty forty bucks. It's yeah. not crazy. Russell's is always a good. Yeah, it's standby. a good wild turkey. It's like made the I right love way. Turkey. Yeah, yeah. Um, we just got our. I picked two barrels from uh, Turkey uh, for the Russell's Reserve line last March, and we just got those in about two weeks ago. And I was kind of that was a really great barrel pick because we were walking around the Rick houses with uh, three generations of Russells while we were just tapping barrels and drinking out of them. And uh, you live a hard life. It's a hard life. Um, And I thought maybe I was a little bit wrapped up in the moment when we were uh, when we were there. And we got them in like nine months later and I sit down and taste them. I'm like, no, these are really good. <laughs> but, um, the Willet four year bourbon, if you can find it right now is incredible. It's the first, it's the Willet family estates. It's got like 80 pictures, very small collage style on the label. And it's the first thing that Willet has, uh, released in the family estates line as a bourbon. And it is absolutely incredible and such a great nod to what the future of that company is going to be. Uh, Stephanie, I know you've been quiet, but I wanted to... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Stephanie. It's cool. You know what, you guys? I'm learning science. I'm learning food. I'm sipping on peach bur- brandy. Peach brandy. And uh, I'm having a good time. So I'm, I'm happily quiet over here. You guys are making this job way too easy. Like, hey, I know. You even have your back turned towards me. I'm just taking pictures. Having a good time. <laughs> well, do you, have, do you have one last question for Morgan before we wrap this up? You know what, Morgan? My question to you is with all of this craziness going on and your whole evolution, what's next? Because you're a man with a plan, and this is already in the forefront for you. So this this is yeah, probably something that's... You've got two restaurants and a bar to open and a distillery so what, to launch. But, like, by the way, the, what's Rainbows what, what's and unicorns, horizon? what is it? I mean, what I, is it? I don't know, but I could definitely see a mashup of all these kind of things happening at some point in the future somewhere. Okay. Going, I know you Going back to plans. that question about a real brick-and-mortar distillery, there's got to be something that all these things can play nicely together. All right, well, Stephanie Gary, thank you. Thank you, guys. I had a blast. We can watch you every day on Houston Life on KPRC. Sure can. We can follow you on Instagram at Stephanie Gary, G-E-R-R-Y TV. This is true. Uh, Morgan, we can follow you on Instagram at Morgan underscore F underscore Weber. And, of course, agricolehospitality.com for all the latest goings on with everything that you're doing. Well, thank you, sir. And you can follow me on Twitter at E. Sandler on Instagram at Eric Sandler. And of course, keep it locked on Culture Map for all the latest bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.